Amen. I appreciated last week <clears throat> Pastor Corey's introduction to um, an overview of the book of Psalms. And we see, and perhaps some of you learned that, you know, it's just not a thrown together book with a lot of emotion and expression, but it really is a very well organized book of the Bible that gives us very clear instruction, uh, not only about those emotional things of our lives, but about the truth of God, about the birth of Christ, about His redemptive work. It's a wonderful unfolding of that, and I hope that as you read through the Psalms, it'll give you a better understanding of the context and, and what its purpose was as the five books were addressed And certainly we can draw this conclusion that the book of Psalms is really about the greatness of our God. It is about who He is and our relationship with Him. I love the fact that we are setting out this summer, uh, while our uh, pastor is gone, uh, to look at the um, different Psalms. Uh, Pastor Aaron allowed us to choose a Psalm that we would like to speak on. I have the privilege of speaking on four of the Psalms during this uh, time And today, we look at Psalm 77. But when I think back on the the book of Psalms, I I, I love the fact that there's such richness there. Uh, Jan and I chose our life verse out of the Psalms, Psalm 48, 14. And it talks about the greatness of God, that He will be our God forever and ever, even to the point of death. So it speaks of God's guidance. I also love the fact that I have used Psalm 16 many times when I've been with people and they're on the edge of death and I've talked about, do you know that it is God who leads us into the path of life? In His uh, presence is fullness of joy. And this is what you're going to get to experience. I love that. We celebrate that together right in the context of death. I appreciate the fact that just a few weeks ago at... um, Pastor Wood was able to share with us Psalm 23 as we recited that together and the, the beauty of God's shepherding care, and he related that to us as elders in terms of how we relate. Who hasn't read Psalm 119 and loved the, the authority of the Word of God and the richness of that as we read through that long chapter, but we see it in terms of that? But today we address a psalm that you may not be as familiar with. And it speaks of, uh, and there's four points that I want to share with you today. And it speaks of uh, a man, Asaph. Asaph is uh, relating this incident. Uh, He's written 12 or 13 of the psalms. Uh, Asaph was the one that was appointed by King David to be like a worship director, and he was a poet as well, and he wrote these psalms. He wrote uh, Psalm 73, for example, and you recall it was in that psalm that he became confused because he didn't understand why the rich were prospering and why the righteous seemed to be suffering. And then it says, until he went into the sanctuary of God, and then his perspective was changed. But he wrote uh, these psalms, uh, 73 through the following he wrote also Psalm 50. But he was, uh, he was a choir director. He was a poet. He was a, he was a theologian, and he wrote these. In this particular psalm, he writes in terms of four points that we can look at. 
First of all, there is a problem that is defined. He's having a hard time. And then we see in the second part some conclusions that he drew from the context of his difficulty that were false. And then we see a pivotal change. There's one decisive moment in his life where he says, I've got to redirect my thoughts. And then at the very end, we see the fruit of a new focus. So that's kind of what we're looking at today in this uh, psalm. The first part, he begins to then talk about his, uh, his problem. And it was a severe crisis. Uh, I would say that every one of us who have lived any time at all, any length of time, we've experienced great difficulty. We've experienced times when we were uncertain if God was still with us, if he was still for us. And it's been devastating. Perhaps it's been uh, the loss of a loved one, a child, or a mate of many years. Or maybe you had a medical report that was shocking to you and all of life seemed to drain out of you. Or maybe as parents, you've had children that have walked away from your beliefs and your understanding and have walked away of the world. All of these things leave us in a tailspin that we really have a hard time re-anchoring our souls so that we have a level of stability in our lives. This psalm addresses this. Several months ago, Jan and I were introduced to a a movie that was out and still is called Greater. Uh, I love um, good movies that are true stories that have a redemptive message in it. And this is one of those that's in there. Uh, Brandon uh, Burlesworth is the primary person in this. And the story is unfolded about how he, um, in in junior high school, he loved football. And so he he just played football. In fact, one time the the, um, coach for the high school team came by and he saw uh, Brandon playing there. And he said, I'm going to keep my eye on you when you get into high school. Because Brandon was hustling. He played hard. He was a disciplined person and he wanted to make the team. And so he went into high school. Sure enough, the coach did recognize him and he was able to play on the high school team. A long aspiration that he had had was he always wanted to play for the Arkansas Razorbacks. That's the team that he wanted to go be a part of. And, uh, and in fact, his senior year, he went down there to uh, visit the campus, and he introduced himself to the coach, and he said, Coach, I want to play football for you. He looked at him, and he said, Son, I don't think so. He said, You're not near big enough. He said, We, we need big men. Now, he was good in high school. But he was not big enough. So he took that as for what it was worth. And he went home and started eating. And he just gained weight. I mean, he was he just really, uh, no polite way to say it, he just got fat. And so then when he went to, uh, went to uh, uh, he graduated, he actually did get a full-ride scholarship to a lesser college. But he told his mom, even after the graduation, his mom, I'm not going there. I'm going to Arkansas. I'm going to be a Razorback. And she said, we can't afford that. This is a free ride. And she, he said, I'm going there. And she, she then mortgaged her home to pay for his first year of schooling. She said, that's all I can do. I have nothing else. I have no other reserves, no other money. This is all I have to give to you. And so he went. And when he got there, he saw the same coach. And the coach looked at him. And he said, son, you can't play football for me. You're too fat. 
he really became discouraged. But one of the coaches began to work with him because he had such a rugged discipline to his life that he, and he wanted, he was driven, I want to play football. And he played. And long story short, he was actually uh, made All-American uh, team. And he was chosen at, after his graduation, 63rd pick in the NFL draft by the Indianapolis Colts. Amazing. I mean, more than he ever anticipated would happen. Now, there was a lot of discipline. He was a godly young man. He was disciplined. He was instrumental in the salvation of many of his teammates, had an influence upon the coaches. He was just a real wonderful, godly man. And drafted 63rd, going to be an Indianapolis Colt. He was going home to uh, go to church with his mother, who had a deep affection for her. And uh, on that trip, he was head-on by another car, and he was killed instantly. And um, there was a knock at the door, and two state troopers stood there, and that's not a good sign, folks. (laughs) And they said, "Um, are you Mrs. Uh, So-and-so? Yes, I am. Burlesworth said, well, we have, your son has been involved in an accident, and it was fatal. He was killed instantly. She then, and I don't know who this actress was, but I have to say, she must have been at some point associated with some deep pain in her life because she played the part. She immediately collapsed to the floor, and she began to cry out, God, why? Why, God? Why, God? And she entered into what I call the dark night of the soul. You've lost your perspective. Everything that she was celebrating in life was gone. All that was gone in that moment, it was gone. And she lost her orientation. I think this is a little bit what the psalmist is trying to describe to us here. He's trying to describe a time that was devastating in his life, that he was faced with some kind of problem, and in that devastation, he lost his orientation. We hear a little bit about that as it unfolds. Listen as he describes his problem here, not the problem itself, but his course of action that he was taking in relationship to his problem. We do know that this man had a relationship with God. We do that know that he probably was a mature man of God, just by the actions that he takes. Now, I say that because sometimes we think that in our early part of our Christianity, we can have struggles, and then we're done with all of that, and we just enter into this great life of ease and celebrating our faith. And I'll just say to you that God is never done growing us up, and he will always bring things into our lives that are beyond us so that he can manifest his greatness in the midst of that. And so this man, when he faced this problem, we hear what, he's do- what he does here. Verse 1, my voice rises to God and I will cry aloud. This was not a subtle thing that he was doing. This was an open, emotional, even if we wish, a shouting out to God. And it was not just a one time, but it was habitual. He kept crying out to God. He kept crying out to God, much like that woman when she fell to her knees and said, why God, why God, 
what are you doing here? This is a way. He says, my voice rises to God. And I love what he says here. He will hear me. He had the absolute confidence that God would hear him. So he had had some experience in his life where he'd gone to God and God answered his prayer. And he said, I've got the formula down. I have problems. I go to God. He solves them and we've got it made. Life goes on. Verse 2, he says, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. So he's doing the right thing. That's what we would say to each other in the time of our difficulty. Go to God. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. And the hands were stretched out, and I see the the symbolism of this is saying, God, here I am. I'm in a position now to receive from you. Pour it out, God. Give it to me. Give me. Give me the answer, Lord. Help me. He says, my soul refused to be comforted. No matter what he was doing before God, no matter how he was crying out, the agony was still there. What was happening here? God was not responding. God didn't answer him. You think, wow, why would he do that? Well, we'll see it in a moment. My soul refused to be comforted. There was nothing anywhere in relationship to God that was answering the deep cry and the desperation of my heart. Have you been there? (laughs) Have you been there thinking, God, where are you? Why don't you talk to God, now of all times, this is when you ought to be speaking to me. I'm before you. Do you not do you not see that as your servant I'm right before you? I'm asking, do something, God. Silence. He goes on to say, When I remember God. Then I'm disturbed. There's a transition that's now going on with him. And he is now because he's not hearing from God. And may I say here that God really is not obligated to answer us. He may choose to do that, but he's not obligated. And we'll answer more of that even at the latter part here. And now he's beginning to say, when I remember God, then I'm disturbed. Have you not been in a situation at times where life has lost its orientation and someone will come up to you and they'll mention something about God? They'll quote a Bible verse to you. And you just say, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. That doesn't make sense to me right now. In fact, when you mention that, it disturbs me because I'm talking to the very God you're talking about here and nothing's happening. Have you ever been angry with people for suggesting to you that all things work together for good to those who love God and called according to his purpose? Well, don't you really, you are very much more polite than I am, but don't you really want to say to you, would you please for a moment, shut up. You have no idea what I'm going through. You don't understand. I am talking to God and he's not talking to me. He said, I'm disturbed. When I sigh, my spirit grows faint. He's getting weaker and weaker. And then notice what it says here. It goes on. Verse 4. You have held my eyelids open. First of all, he just comes to God with a problem. And now he's saying, God, you're at fault. You're not answering me here. Do you understand, God? This is so bothering me that I can't even sleep. 
If you would answer this and give me an understanding, I could get on with my rest. I could find some level of peace in the midst of this. I can't even sleep anymore. I can't even speak anymore. Things that I'm saying no longer make sense. Things that I held on to before in the context of where I'm at now, they don't make any sense. What I say has no relevance. He said, I've considered the days of old, years long ago, even as some, I think it's 41 says, the, the special song that we had. I remember that song that we had in the light, the night. Don't you do that? Because he, now he said, I will meditate with my heart and with my spirit, I will ponder. There's a real shift that has now taken place here. He said, you know, Lord, we used to have this sweet relationship. We sang songs to each other in the night, had that special song that we would sing, and we knew that we were together. You were listening, and I was talking, and it was marvelous. But none of that's working anymore. So now what he's doing is he is taking his eyes off God, and he's going horizontal. I will ponder. I will meditate with my heart, and my spirit ponders. If I'm going to make sense of life, I'm going to have to make sense of it on my own. I'm on my own now. I'll figure that I'm going to follow my heart, what my heart says. I'm going to listen to what my spirit says. God's not talking, so I guess I'm just on my own now. I'll have to figure this out on my own. And I say that this is a very dangerous time when we go horizontal because of the silence of God to the solution of the dilemma that we're in, because I guarantee you, in that context, you will draw false conclusions or you will pursue false ways. It could be that you've given up on God at that point. This is a test of your faith right here. And you'll say, well, what difference does it make? I'll just eat, drink, and be merry. God doesn't care anyway. Maybe I will pursue. Maybe there is something to drugs out there. Maybe that is a way of escape. Maybe I will try alcohol. Maybe I'll just try living in materialism. I've got to do something because I've got to resolve this aching pain within. And I'm willing to do that. And so he does. And I say to you, as I say to myself, anytime I try to draw conclusions about God from the context of my problem, I will probably come up with false answers. And what I really need to do is to concentrate on God to try to understand my problem. I think he was doing that, but I think he was only on this basis. God, answer me. Fix it. Do it. Answer it. He was not simply trying to get lost in God. He was fairly well lost in his problem. He was consumed by his problem. That's all he could think about. It's all he thought about through the night. It's all he, he slept, he thought. And then it just goes horizontal trying to figure it out. Well, here's some of his faulty conclusions he begins to draw. And he does it in the form of questions. And, and I think that they're fair questions. And I think if we could be honest with each other, we've thought these questions before. We've really asked, and the, fun, the fundamental question here, has God changed? Is he trustworthy? He asked six questions here. 
because he's feeling that God has rejected. Will the Lord reject forever? Will we never sing that song again in, in the night? Will we never have that sweet communion? Will I be lost in this quagmire of confusion and death and destruction and despair? Is this the nature of it's going to be? Will he reject forever? Question two. And will he never be favorable again? There was a time he was favorable. It seemed as if we had a good relationship. It seemed as if he liked me. It seemed as if I was on his team, but it doesn't feel that way anymore. Will he never be favorable again to me? Will I live in this dark night of my soul forever? Question three, has his loving kindness ceased forever? Is his grace no longer available to me? Is the kindness of God something that I will never experience again? And then he asks, has his promises, has his promise come to an end? And then he adds that, forever. Is God trustworthy? Can I depend upon him? Does it, do, his problems, do his promises mean anything in the context of my problem here? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Are you just changing God? You're not going to operate that way anymore? It was so reliable before, but now it just seems to be changing. Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Those are pretty sobering thoughts, aren't they? Desperate thoughts. And I don't fault him. I think that he's going through the struggle, trying to figure out what's going on. There's some interesting expressions that are given to you, if you'll note that in verse 3. You see that? um, When my soul remembers God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. And then it's that word selah. You see it there? It's also down here at at, uh, this portion where he says, when he draws these questions, he said, selah. And what selah means really in the psalmist definition here, it really means to, you better stop and think about what you're saying. You better go up under a shade tree and reflect on some of the, where you are in this point. It is the point to understand, do you understand God? Do, do, do you believe what you're saying here is a huge shift from where you've been. How can you, can I stay there? Uh, it, it, the problem, he said, I just have to think about this in verse three. I just have to think about it. What's going on? It, it is robbing me of every possible avenue of sanity. I better think about that some. This is a huge problem. And now he's saying, I'm drawing these conclusions about God. Can I live there? This is our third point. You know, one is, this is a problem. Two, these are my confusing conclusions that I'm drawing from the context of my problem. And then this, this is a crisis transition that comes about. Verse 10, then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the most high has changed. He said, I've got a big problem here. But I've now got... A bigger problem. Whatever I was facing here is now complicated by the fact that I don't believe in God anymore. Can I live in a world that has no understanding of God? Can I live in a world that doesn't have the 
the, the idea that there's a sovereign God in control who is a compassionate, loving God, who is a redemptive God. And he concludes that how big his problem was, it didn't really matter at that point. He couldn't live there. So he makes a choice based upon this Selah experience, this reflective moment, that I'm going to make a change here. And this is what he does. I'm going to change my focus. Verse 11, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your, your wonders of old. Now what he's doing here, he said, up to this point, I've been consumed by the problem. I talk about it all the time. I dream about it. I think about it. I eat it. I drink. I do it all. It's just a huge problem. And now he says, I'm going to redirect my thoughts and I'm going to go. The problem doesn't go away, but I'm going to redirect my thoughts and I'm going to remember some of the things that God has done. I will remember the wonders of old. I will meditate on all your works and muse on your deeds. I I think this is a very constructive point that he makes for us. And that is, even with the problem roaring in your head and in your heart, you say, wait a minute, what do I know about God? I do know God is a creator God. I do know that he's powerful. I do know that he's a God of deliverance. I do know that he was the one that when Jehoshaphat heard, heard the army coalition of nations coming against him, that you, God, set him free. I do know that Daniel in the lion's den had you with him there, Lord. I do remember when David was going out against Goliath. You were there, God. I do remember when Elijah was standing against the false prophet. You were there. I'm going to remember, God, when you've manifested yourself. And there are things that you can remember. You can remember the time when the doctor gave you the report, and then six months later you go in and you have another test, and they say, the cancer's gone. Oh, God, I remember that. I remember when I didn't have a job, and I was worried about how I was going to put food on the table for my family. And you showed up, God. You gave me a job. You did that, God. I can remember when I was at the end of all of my resources and a check came in just at the right time. You did that, God. You are a God of performance. You are a God of deeds. You are. And we have to start talking about those things. And he draws then four conclusions about God in his meditation that changes his perspective on this. He said, and I, and I love this. He said, I'm going to meditate on all your work. Notice that uh, the pronoun is you. It's your work. It's your deeds. And he says, this is what I conclude. Verse 13, your way, O oh God, is holy. God, and holy means right, righteous, truth. You know something, God? In all my recollections, I can never see where you did wrong. I can't ever remember a time. There were times I was confused and I didn't see. But then as I labored longer and stayed with you, you were so true, God. You were so holy. You were so right. And then, rather than being discouraged about the apparent impotency of God, he now transforms this and breaking out almost in spontaneous praise, he says, what God is great like our God? He already is changing his, his rhetoric. It's, it's coming out differently now. He's saying, God, you are great. I remember I was sitting in the hot tub oh, about one o'clock in the morning, and I was uh, going through some of the things that before God and saying, God, I'm, I'm just so 
sorry for this. I, I wished I'd never said this, or I wished I'd never done that. And, and I wished, and I was saying, I, I, I'm just so ashamed of that. Now, I've never heard the audible voice of God, but I think God speaks to us, and he, and he did to me that night. And, and it was, I, I put it in more crass terms than I believe he really spoke, but it was, it was kind of the message I got. Would, would you please shut up? I am sick and tired of you rehearsing your sins. And when you rehearse your sins, you diminish my gospel. That it has no impact of forgiveness or cleansing or setting you free. Will you please shut up and start celebrating your forgiveness? And I'll tell you exactly what I did there, sitting there in the hot tub, nobody around, nobody to perform before. My hands went up in the air, and I said, oh, God, oh, God, thank you. Thank you for your forgiveness. You see, when the truth of God manifests itself and floods our hearts, what is spontaneously coming out of us is the praise to God. And that's what happened. I began to celebrate God. I have never rehearsed my sins before God since that time. I've been tempted, you know, but I've said, no, God, your gospel is greater than my failure. Isn't that good news? Why would I diminish that message? We have no hope if there's no deliverance from our sins. If there's not a holy God who can pay the price for our sins and set us free. Well, that's another message. Let me go on here. You're the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among peoples. I think probably maybe what was going through his mind was the time when all of the children of Israel were down in Egypt. And they were living under this oppressive government that was there. And they were crying out to God. And God began to deliver his people as he addressed the false gods of Egypt one by one and declared the greatness of their God because what they needed to know more than anything else was the power of God to deliver and the character of God that never changes. And he manifested that. And so they, he, they remember how they were delivered by the hand of God. And Moses had to learn that because he said, Lord, I'm going to go down there, but what will I say? How am I going to get this across? He said, just tell him I am. I am that I am. And God will carry out fulfilling the reputation of his life. The strength of God. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. You ever thought of that? So if he's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that I ask or think, that means he does things I haven't even thought of. He does things I haven't even asked for. He's able to do beyond that. There's nothing beyond the strength of God. So that would help him to understand a little bit, if you think about this. God, I don't know what's going on, but I do know one thing. You never do wrong. You're holy. And I do know another thing, that you're able to do whatever you choose to change the situation. You have the power to do that. And then he goes on to the next one, verse 15. You have by your power redeemed your people. Now, it's one thing to have power, but do you have the compassion then to release the power for transformation? And he does. He's a God of power and grace. And he does both of those to carry out his will. And this redemption, I love this. I just got exposed this week to a program called Overhaul. Uh, I'm not a mechanic. I know a couple of good mechanics, but I'm not a mechanic. 
And this program, what they do is they take people, you can turn in your, say, I love this person. They've got an old beater of a car and they're driving it around and this car means everything to them. Would you come in and take it and just overhaul the whole thing? It's amazing what they do. It's better shape than they were even when it was new. And they do that. And, and I'm watching this and I, I love to see, I love to watch people that know what they're doing do it. And make it, it, it is incredible what they make with these cars. I mean, I, I just love it. And then when I was listening thinking, and I was thinking about my message, it says, well, Mike, that's what I do to you. You know, all you had to offer me was brokenness and shame. And I made something beautiful of your life. Oh, God, thank you for overhauling me. <laughs> thank you for putting a new chassis in me, you know. All right. He is able to redeem us. That means to take that which up to this point serves no productive purpose and will now transform it into a useful purpose. And then he goes on to talk about, in these last few verses here, about the shepherding care. Your holy God, your powerful, your redeeming God, and you also are a shepherd. He remembers one of the most amazing times in the life of Israel. From verse 16, it was a time when the Egyptians were pursuing the Israelites. They're back, the, the Israelites back against the Red Sea. Egyptian armies pursuing. And there they were caught in a hopeless situation. A big problem. And then it says here, <laughs> I love this because I never thought of this until I was studying this, that he actually gives us a weather report of what was going on the day of deliverance. Ever notice about that? You know, you can be having a hard time, but when the weather is not even cooperating, God, at least you can make the sun shine today. But here, listen to this. He said, the water saw you, O God. The water saw you, and they were in anguish. Isn't it interesting? He talks about as if the waters were alive, and they feared the thing that the Israelites should fear, and that is God. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out rain. It was raining. The skies uh, gave forth a sound. The arrows flashed. Your arrows flashed here and there. A thunder and lightning storm. The sound of your thunder, your thunder, was in the whirlwind. The, light, uh, lighting, uh, the lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. I don't know what I'm going to do, God. It looks like we're going to die soon. Egyptians are ticked off at us. We're caught in the middle here, and there's no way of going from here. Do you think God was up in heaven thinking, wow, I didn't see this coming. I mean, no joke, Moses, you've got a problem. I I should have led you perhaps another. We should have taken that right turn back there. uh, He... Your way, already anticipated by God. Don't miss that. Your way was in the sea, and your path in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. I guarantee you, in their committee meeting to talk about what to do with this problem, nobody came up with the idea, let's just walk across on dry land. Come on, man, knock it off. We've got a problem here. We can build pontoons. We can take swimming lessons. We can do something practical. Well, you're telling me we're going to walk across? Yes, that's the plan of God. What you cannot see, what you cannot anticipate, what you cannot resolve, God does even before you have the problem to resolve it. That's a shepherd, folks. A shepherd protects you. 
A shepherd loves you. A shepherd provides for you. And so when he began to think about all of these things, he said, oh, God, thank you for shepherding my heart. Thank you for reminding me of your power and your redemptive work and you're always right. Three observations I draw from this psalm, okay? Then we close. Number one, we never know what this man's problem was. Isn't that interesting? We don't know what his problem was. I think the psalmist leaves it that way on purpose. Because you can take your problem to him. Because if we were doing, this is not just a formula for this particular problem that this particular man faced at this particular time. The formula that he's given to us is for any problem you face. Secondly, my second observation is, we never know if the problem was solved. <laughs> it doesn't go on to, chapter, to verse 21 and says, and they lived happily ever after. You know, he just doesn't say, he doesn't say how, no ending there. And what I conclude from that is, not minimizing the problem, but I do know this, that if I'm to, if I'm to draw two circles, and I like this circle big and this circle smaller, I have to think that in the course of my conversation, if most of my talk about my problem is the big circle, I will minimize the power and the beauty of God. And if I can reverse those two circles... I will find help on the way. And not only that, I believe that God is so immense and so big that he begins to manifest himself, and this is my problem over here, and he begins to engulf me in the, the immense of, of the beauty and the power and great, and, and suddenly the problem is still there, but in relevancy, it has no significance in the light of who God is. My third observation is this. When you look at this chapter, from verses 1 to 9, there are 21 personal references made there. I, me, my. There are only, there are only seven references made to God. Can you believe that? 21 references to self. In the second section, verses 20, uh, 10 to 20, there are... 12 references made to self in a good context, and 26 references made to God. That's a huge change. That's a perspective change. Sometimes, unexpectedly, the dark night of the soul will come. He never saw it coming. And it blindsides you. It devastates you. You'll be tempted to draw false conclusions about who God is. You'll get lost in the quagmire of your own thinking and pondering. But I'm going to tell you, the psalmist has given us an answer here. Turn to God. Begin to think about Him. And you're not turning to God at this moment and say, oh God, I want to think about you and you're powerful and you're great, so therefore you can solve my problem. God, if you never solve my problem, I'm lost in the beauty of who you are and I'm satisfied in that process.
Habakkuk was confused because God was, Habakkuk was a minor prophet, and he was confused because God was, had revealed to him that he was going to use the Babylonians to judge the Jewish people. That confused Habakkuk because he said, God, I know that we're wicked, and honestly, we're not near as bad <laughs> as the Babylonians. How can you do this? In other words, it caused a little bit of confusion, a dark night of his soul. God is not obligated to answer Habakkuk, but at times he reveals, he opens up the curtains, and he gives us insight. And he does it so that you can understand that he's not off the throne, that he's not ceasing to drive the affairs of life, but he's there all the time. He drew the curtains back, and he said, Habakkuk, look, I'm going to do the Babylonians. I'm going to judge them. I'm going to, the same standards, I, have, I don't change because of who the audience might be. These are the standards and I'm going to judge them. You know what Habakkuk did? When he saw what God was going to do to the Babylonians, knowing that the Babylonians were the enemies of Jerusalem, he said, oh God, in your wrath, remember mercy. In other words, he prayed for his enemies because his perspective was changed. God opened the curtains up, but if God never draws the curtains back, Can you not come to the point where life is not about you or me or my problem, but it's about God? I can tell where you are, and you can tell where I'm at. Because if you spend 10 minutes with me, you'll either know that I'm focused on God or I'm focused on my problem. It'll come out. Let's be people that understand what the psalmist is saying and pursue our God. Lord, we do thank you. What a gracious gift of life you've given to us at great cost to you. In fact, we're hopeless. We are people of despair and futility apart from Christ. But you, Lord, you redeemed us. You made something beautiful of our lives. Oh, God, we glorify you. We honor you. We thank you. We praise you for your goodness, your compassion, that you had the power to overcome sin, that you had the heart of a shepherd to direct us through. And you've led us to the place of life. We thank you for that. We're clothed, we're covered, we're cleansed. We're protected. We're cared for. Oh, God, we thank you for that. And you know, Lord, we're not deserving of that. It's not because we were something special that you reached down and touched us. It's mostly because we were people that were desperate. And you set us free. There's no way, Lord, we can adequately say thank you. Maybe, maybe by talking about you today, how great our God is. But we want to thank you, Lord. The depths of our being, thank you. 